Welcome to Pilot Boys, episode 137. Today we are talking about how the Ukraine team has found that uh, Putin may have cancer. The Giants manager won't take the field in protest of recent shootings, gun control, and finally the NBA finals, followed by a, an interview we have coming out this week as well with Andrew Bogut, Golden State Warriors legend and uh, Australian basketball legend as well. Um, so stay tuned for all of that. We got a, a great episode, great week for you guys. Uh, put your seatbelts in, get your trade tables up. Let's get this thing going. Let's get it. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts. Vish one and Partha. And V, this first headline, when I read it, this Ukraine um, intelligence headline, I felt like this was exactly what we had said when this war started happening with, with Putin. It, it was like, kind of felt out of nowhere that he went so hard at Ukraine. And we were, we were saying, kind of feels like what a dying man would do when they have a time constraint on, on their lives. Now this news breaks from the Ukraine uh, intelligence chief confirming that Putin has cancer and, and what they're saying is he has three years to live. Um, what was your reaction? And, you know, do you, do you even believe it, I guess, in this era of, of, of information as well? Uh, who knows what to believe, right? But there's enough, uh, enough there where there's smoke, there's fire. He's not behaving in the same way. His public appearances have been curtailed. There's a lot of leaks of information. There's actual physical appearance changes. Um, and he's not getting younger. I think he's 69 years old um, as well. So, you know, we're seeing it with our president too, as much as they want to deny that he's he's declining or slowing down. It's visibly obvious um, that we're dealing with a president who is slowing down due to the effects of aging, right? Um, and then the, the question then becomes, what does that mean for what's going on? And to our point was basically like, that's probably what's triggering some of this behavior. This is a cold world era guy who really never... Um, was supportive of the breakup of the USSR in the first place. Um, pretty hard line about that and has been on record communicating that as well. So it does make sense of some of this behavior because it really doesn't, the, the attack on Ukraine made no sense. They proposed, they, they were no imminent threat to him. There were no nuclear arms uh, set up on, uh, in Ukraine targeting, targeting uh, Russia there literally was nothing here um, for him to take this type of attack. Um, and obviously it started with his initial attack in 2014, the annexation of Crimea. Um, and it just goes to show you that, you know, when you give somebody or anybody this type of unchecked power, um, the dangers that lie there, because he has, this is a personal initiative for him whatever his goals are deeply personal. They're not necessarily in the best interests of the country and the country moving forward. Um, but he's doing it anyways because of personal pride, whatever his, whatever's in his warped mind as the former KGB chief. Um, <laughs> we, we know he's got a, he's sure got a lot of issues over there. So that that's kind of 
you know, why it matters that he has cancer is that the behavior, it makes sense of the behavior pattern. That's a summary of everything I'm saying. Do you think that we're in a situation where with um, the Russian oligarchs, first of all, do you think that this is something that they probably already, already knew, but second, um, is an ailing leader something that uh, you think would cause the oligarchs and kind of the powers that be in Russia to make a quick regime change to somebody else that represents their interests and, it, and is a little younger? Well, the difficulty with that is how it's, you know, as, as, as much as you want to criticize Putin, he is ruthlessly brilliant um, in the way that he's, he's isolated and insulated and protected himself uh, against this, you know, he's he's been able to to control power um, for more than three decades now. Um, in addition to that, the oligarchs are very dependent on him for their wealth. You know, he has created. You know, you bite the hand that feeds you, right? Um, there may be a point where you know, as with everything, their self interest um, upend their loyalty. But with Putin specifically he actually is aware that loyalty isn't, isn't, uh, isn't timeless. Uh, so he's created a situation where he really does control the country with an iron fist. And the question really becomes, there's a rumor that there actually was an assassination attempt at the start of the, at the start of this war. Um, but can they actually accomplish that? Can you actually take someone down who controls this much power and, has been smart enough to kind of move the pieces on this chessboard so long to protect himself. It's a very difficult proposition. Yeah. It's certainly an interesting dynamic that they have going over there. And I think this adds wrinkle that we suspected from the, the random nature of a lot of the events that have transpired, but um, it just adds as the context that I think we all kind of felt was there Um, moving forward on that. We've had these crazy shootings over the last you know, few months, um, a high volume of them leading into the summer, very reminiscent of um, election years past and you know, similar kind of social times of unrest and pressure building in the country. Um, a lot of people have had reactions to the gun, gun control, gun violence stuff. Uh, one of the ones I wanted to point out was one of the managers for San Francisco Giants, the baseball team who won't take the field during the anthem and protest. And uh, I thought this was just a really interesting, um, interesting take because he said essentially that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't feeling it in terms of being proud to be an American during all this time where there's no movement uh, in Congress. Um, We heard, you know, another amazing statement from Steve Curl on the same lines. Uh, The thing that stood out to me about the Giants manager is that, this is, um, you know, something that Kaepernick lost his whole career for. And, uh, you know, it's uh, obviously a white dude in baseball and it's a totally different set of rules. And I just kind of wanted to call that out too. It's amazing how many of the people who are open critics of Colin Kaepernick, you know, I am not the biggest Colin Kaepernick fan. However, I do think that he had the, the right to do what he did to protest this country is built on the right to protest but it's so fa- it's so fascinating to me when it's a white dude everybody gives them the context the context comes in immediately but when it was colin kaepernick it was fielded as a dis he disrespects the flag versus hey this guy's p- 
is actually doing this to protest police brutality. And it's like, that that is such a funny conundrum because the same people who hate Kaepernick will rise to the defense of this white manager, middle-aged manager in baseball and say, although I disagree with his form of protest, I understand that he is protesting. And it just goes to show you again why this manager, and there is reason to not necessarily be proud to be an American. And the sooner that we actually have that conversation versus having this party of people who just dismiss it outright and don't ever want to look in the mirror and say, hey, there are some things in this country that are deeply, deeply troubling and we need to fix it versus isolating the person. This is about about the macro, not the micro. And the more that we focus on individualizing this Kaepernick thing, it, and, and it goes to show you, right, the consequences have been so severe for Colin Kaepernick. Although he may never have returned as a starter, he probably would have had a job. Now, he did get a very large settlement. Again, I'm a person that doesn't want to have these conversations without context. He did take a large settlement from the NFL, which did protect him financially, but it doesn't mean that he deserved to lose his job overtaking a protest like this or to be alienated in the way that he did, specifically because he was protesting a cause that was important. It is undeniable that we have a police brutality problem in the United States. It's undeniable that we have a gun control issue in the United States, but nobody wants to have these conversations because there's there are these things called lobbies. Um, there are things called police unions who dictate who get into who gets into office and who doesn't get into office, and our politicians don't give a fuck about even their own families. They'll sell their souls to make sure they get reelected. Because I've heard a, a common refrain saying, you know, until this happens to one of their families, it won't matter if it happens to one of their fa families. They care more about the funding that they're getting for the NRI keeping them in the office than they, they would care about that. And that's just the frank reality that we need to acknowledge about our politicians, specifically those on the far right of the aisle in this country. And if we don't embrace and accept that, then we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. I thought Steve Kerr's, um, Steve Kerr's uh, statement on this made a really good point along those lines that it, I think it was 80 or 90% of the country's agree in agreement on uh, background checks on, I saw a clip that um, it was actually Trump uh, meeting with several congressmen in, during his term talking about how at uh 21, you can buy a handgun, but you can buy the types of assault rifles that are used in these school shootings at age 18. And why do, why is that the rule? And there's a lot of these like weird things in it. And nobody wants to stand up and, to your point, lose the funding, you know, get, get out of their crew or whatever it might be. And I think it's an important moment to observe not only the gap that we have in terms of our representatives actually representing us, but then on the flip side, you called it on the police brutality. And I think the Uvalde narrative, as that's really unfolded, has shown us a deeper level of police ineptitude in this country where um, the, all of these police um, waited over an hour to enter the school, uh, essentially compared to what they're trained, broke every single rule of training and essentially just wimped out in in that situation, didn't have the balls to do, do the job they signed up for. And... Uh, I think that that is a really 
strong reflection of what we have in this country from law enforcement and you know politician standpoint i think it's a, a good time to look in the mirror yeah it is you know and if and and these these conversations sometimes you know as they always do they frustrate me because <clears throat> media is incentivized to distract us from the real issue we focus on the perpetrator of the uvalde incident we focus on the police officer and the victim of the police brutality, we always focus in and narrow in on the symptoms because it's a distraction from dealing with the real issues. <coughs> the real issues that we have in America is that our economy is extremely dependent on arms manufacturing. We export 37% of all the guns and weapons sold in, across the world. We, the, and, and in addition to that, you look at since the economic collapse and the real estate collapse, um, it, it's crazy to even think about this number. The, this, the economic impact of the firearm and ammunition industry in 2008 was $19.1 billion. Sizable figure, right? In 2021, that number is $70.52 billion. Wow. So that just tells you what's happening here. It's easy to get a gun. People are buying more guns. Violence is increasing. Just over this Memorial Day weekend, there were 11 shootings that could be categorized as mass shootings that occurred throughout the country during these kind of Memorial Day festivities. We're not, so these are kind of like, are we gonna really have these conversations? You know, we haven't had meaningful legislation around guns in over 20 years. In addition, um, in anything, if anything, those rules, the the arms rules that we put in, stick, restrictions on assault rifles, they allowed those to sunset in 2004. So there were restrictions, even restrictions that were common sense that were implemented are now being pulled back. And we're seeing the impact of this. Um, and I'm not, I live in Texas. I live in Houston. I'm not a completely an anti-gun, you know. I understand people's desire to own guns, to, to hunt, to, to protect their home. I understand all of that. But I believe that there's a lot, when we really under understand how deeply troubled and how much mental health issues, how many mental health issues there are and all the triggers that can cause people to go into a rage and misuse these firearms. We should be very restrictive on how how thorough we inspect people before they purchase a gun or are allowed to purchase a gun. In addition, there are literally, you know, and also we should be funding. The ATF is one of the most underfunded organizations in the U.S. They tie their hands behind their backs. And in addition to that, there are almost no restrictions on the creation or regulation and on the creation of ammunition. You and I could just produce rounds and rounds of ammunition in our garage with no one saying or doing anything about it. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. Just breaking down a lot of the gaps that we have here. Um, I think as a as citizen base, you know, from an impact standpoint. If you really feel strongly on this issue, you should vote for somebody who feels the same way as you and vote based on the track record, not based on the rhetoric. 
Yeah. I mean, the thing is, that's what distractionary politics are, right? It's like, you know, we, we focus on, they, they're able to distract you with, with issues like um, other issues while they <laughs> undercover just keep pushing, put, ignoring major problems in the country. And our, our political infrastructure is, is broken. We just have, you know, um, interestingly enough, uh, a, a politician from the right um, that was deeply hated, a very conservative politician named Paul Ryan, um, who was a speaker of the uh, House Majority Leader um, <clears throat> for several years, actually said, we have a very serious issue on both sides of the aisle in the sense that, you know, too many of our politicians care about what's being said on Twitter um, and being famous and getting attention than they care about negotiating and enacting real policy that matters. He said that historically that's what politicians used to measure themselves on is the impact of the policies that they were able to create. And he sees a shifting dynamic here on both sides of the aisle um, uh, that's that's very troubling and scary uh, to see. And it was interesting to see a, a Republican kind of take that stance. Yeah, that's well said. I think that's characteristic of a general trend across um, this country as well professionally is that we're measuring professional success these days by uh, essentially fame and clout. Um, and very, very um, little of it is actually based on the actual merit of what is being done or the value to society or the positivity in terms of its impact. Uh, we really don't think about those things anymore because they're not easy to represent on a tweet. They're not easy to show off on Instagram. Um, but I think that's kind of, that, that's the real stuff. That's the stuff that actually adds up at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't want them to spend uh, thousands of dollars on telling me about uh, Ayak and Elon Musk fighting over their Teslas on Twitter. Like, I don't care like that. You saw that whole thing happen and you saw two deeply narcissistic people just keep on <laughs> flaming the fires of a conversation that doesn't matter, doesn't impact their consumers, doesn't impact their constituents. It's like typical rich people's problems. And it was very clear that both of them were doing it because they saw the type of media attention that it generated, but it was completely meaningless. Yeah. Makes both people wanting to have a beef just like in hip hop. And I think- yeah. Maybe 50 cents now, the consultant to a lot of these politicians. Uh, no, politicians and the, the CEOs of these big founders of these big companies who get yeah. on Twitter and instead of uh, using their money to actually run for office, they just sit sit on here and talk shit all day. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one thing I wanted to highlight while we were on gun control that I thought was a really good point. This uh, I saw a lot of folks chatting about it on Twitter. Um, the Joe Rogan stance on this, I thought um, it was an interesting stance. Uh, essentially, his view is that if you do, if you do take a, a harsh stance in terms of gun control and really significantly, you know, if you were to say ban guns, um, it would only be the criminals that have them. And I, I do think that that's a valid point. It's something I wanted to call out as well. I think one of the challenges with legislation in general, especially around these sorts of areas, I think you see the same kind of incentives economically is that. Sometimes when you lean in, it actually creates the opposite effect that's intended. Um, I think there's common sense things that can be immediately done that should be done on gun control. And I think those are the things to focus on 
uh, things like the background checks, things like the regulations around ammo or just basic things that you were calling out V that are done in every other industry. Um, but if you go to very, very strong extremes on these things in terms of how you think things should be, oftentimes it can have a result that you're not necessarily anticipating. So there's value, especially with some of these serious issues. Like I think with the police, if we, um, you know, approach like that whole defund the police mentality, it's like, well, defund what? Or is it train the police better? Or is it create a national standard for policing? Or is it, you know, create better accountability systems? But it's rarely such a simple solution as, hey, we're just not going to do that anymore. Look, Joe Rogan's statement is bullshit. It's full of shit. And I'm going to tell you it's full of shit for this reason, because no data supports what he's saying. It's true. Yes, the criminals, yes, more, but crimes are being, the crimes that are won't be controlled or the crimes that are being committed, random acts of violence by 18-year-olds, 16-year-olds going to school, shooting people up. If you look in the data and you look at every country that has extremely strict regulations on gun control, there is very low rates of gun violence. So Joe Rogan oftentimes just says shit because he wants to act like he's, he's taking a contrarian stance, but he doesn't ever show any data to support it. And that's, very, that's also what's troubling about the polarization of these conversations. This is a very common sense conversation. Yes, the gun industry is an important part of the American economy. Therefore, we cannot just completely eliminate it. But we can regulate it better. Is the regulation strong enough? No. Is the ATF need more funding? Yes. Should we make it harder for people to get guns? Yes. Should we make it impossible for criminals almost to get guns? Because the reason that there's a proliferation, where do you think all these illegal guns are coming from? Why do you, there's no control and regulation of the manufacturers of these guns from leaks and guns disappearing into the streets. If I want to go get a gun right now, I can go buy one on the street. No serial number, nothing. You could do it too. So let's have a real conversation here about this in America. And that's not talk about this bullshit. Oh, if we overregulate, it could create more problems. That's fucking bullshit. And you and, and anyone who supports that is is full of shit themselves. Well, I I think actually in <laughs> you you I think you made the same point, but just in a different way. But I think um, that notion of regulating. <laughs> side is more what I was getting at. It's not as simple as banning something outright because you don't necessarily get to the intended outcome. I think there's uh, one of the stances that's interesting in a lot of these types of debates. The stats do show, you know, in the countries that don't have any guns that there's obviously no gun violence. But um, the the element to me that's interesting is once you create the le- the um, legislation change, you then have to find a means of recollecting what's in the streets that's illegal if you're going to make something illegal those elements of gun control have always been the more challenging ones from an execution standpoint oh 100 this isn't an easy problem for america to solve but i don't think i think the problem that we're having is this a very common sense logical conversation i think most of the american public is probably more realistic about this than the politicians because they're so polarized based on whoever the lobbyist that's supporting them is. There's, it's just, there's, there are common solution, sense solutions to prevent some of these things from happening. One, eight, why, why, why is it that a 21-year-old, you have to be 21 to drink, but only 18 to buy a gun? How many 18-year-olds need a gun? Why should they be in possession of a gun? 
<coughs> common sense solution, right? But it's not changed. Yeah. You know? that that's a that's an interesting one as as well is that you you have to be 21 for a handgun 18 for an assault rifle that was a really interesting factoid that i saw over the week um and it's been it's been politicians on both sides of the aisle that have pushed for regulation but you tend to have this very strong it was kind of this initial tea party movement over the republican party which turned into kind of its own faction that now kind of runs the party. Um, but it's it's this very strange kind of alliance that's been built in there to not budge because they're, you know, really concerned and focused on playing a power game within Congress, less concerned about making regu- regulations that, you know, add into improving the country. A bipartisan bill was sent to the Senate and it's been sitting there for multiple years. They won't even vote on it. Exactly. Like, that was it, that Steve Kerr called out. I thought that was a really amazing call out because you have um, an issue that that bipartisan bill is supported all the way through the House. Again, shorter term politicians, they change out a lot more often. So less of the less of the power grabs than in the Senate and a larger volume of folks. Um, so you have this bipartisan bill that gets through and then it gets held up because, you know, 50 people don't want to vote, don't want to show up to vote on this bill because they want to leverage that kind of power that they have to get other things done. And so it creates this dynamic where, again, back to the voting. And it's been interesting watching issues like this change my stance on voting because I, you know, I think it's easy to take a stance that, oh, man, well, I'm not I'm not buying into any of this. But there are meaningful changes that can be made that everything comes with its own cost. So you kind of have to be balanced about the choices you make. But there are choices you can make in terms of who's representing you based on looking at their voting track record to know if things are actually going to get through or if they play politics, you know, a particular way. And I think it's definitely worth it for everybody to do that research on their local congressman or local senator who's running for re-election this time around. Because if they are somebody that isn't there for the right reason that you can see with their voting record or with the people they align with and operate with, that they're not there to improve the country. They're there just to stay in power. You know, those are the people we really have to be vigilant about as a population. Yeah, and also setting some term limits in the Senate, you know, um, that could also be helpful. Um, you know, having these guys that are in there for 40, 50 years, um, you know, controlling power um, and dictating the terms and the will of the American people. As Steve Kerr said, 90% of Americans support stricter gun laws. Why is it that, you know, 15 to 20 percent of senators can prevent that from happening? Are we really a country that is about the will of the people or is it a will of a few people? And we, you know, people get mad at me when I when I keep saying, you know, the best thing that this country can do is one election. The entire populace just abstain from voting for any of these clowns, you know, Um, and the truth is it doesn't seem like there's any other meaningful way to do this because what you're saying, Partha, makes a lot of sense. But over time, in decades, I've seen this over and over again. Even the idea behind, like, we can't have these uncomfortable conversations because even around the right to vote, I'm a proponent that, yes, you do have the right to vote, but you also are required to be an educated voter, which means that you are properly educated on the con- candidates, not just what's being said on the their partisan commercials that you're buying into based around issues that emotionally trigger you, but let's actually have an objective way for 
the citizens to understand who they're voting for and who they're not voting for and obligate them to have an understanding of basic civics, basic yeah. <laughs> the basics of how the government works so that when you do vote, it actually is meaningful and you're not, you're not a harmful vote that's voting for just based on emotions. Yeah. I also think um, I found the, co- the candidate websites to be actually surprisingly helpful when it comes to understanding what their positions are. Um, I was surprised just to see how transparent people are with what they what they believe in, what they vote for. So if you've got someone who's like, hey, I'm never, ever going to you know, work with the other party. A lot of the times they write that on the website. It's yeah. pretty easy read. <laughs> I'm just very confused on how the people of Kentucky continue to vote this guy Mitch McConnell in. He clearly is a guy that only cares about himself, only cares about power. Doesn't necessarily. That's not a. The, Kentucky isn't isn't a fast rising state that's drawing all kinds of Fortune 500 companies to it. It's not growing. It's not. There's not a whole bunch of positive energy happening in Kentucky. Yet, based on how you know voting boundaries, whatever is set up, this guy gets reelected every time. You know, and you could say the same for a Pelosi on the other side. I'm trying to keep this balanced. Um, so. You know, it's pretty weird for sure. I mean, I think especially when you see like uh, the the insider trading logs of most of these folks, it's just like, come on, man, you got to get out. There was a I I just read this about the uh, press secretary um, for the White House, did the job for a year, um, started on a 150 K salary for the year and left with a net worth of 20 million, you know. How is that happening? That's it's, crazy. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to see. We saw, you know, the the story, even though it was a private matter of uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband crashing his 2021 Porsche uh, when he was driving to the family vineyard, yet she's over here propo- as a proponent. Again, it's like there's nothing wrong with making money, but if, if what you're preaching is that you're this, you know, this power to the people, uh, person it doesn't vibe right right you have to represent what you say you represent yeah and and that is what's really troubling um and to me is how easily um we as a as a public get manipulated by these folks and we continue to go vote for the same people over and over and over again we vote strictly based on party lines because we think one person is more evil and then the truth is that we're doubling down. We're seeing more and more extremism in both parties. If you're a moderate Republican or a moderate Democrat, you're going to get stomped out um, by your own party, and you're going to get stomped out by the voting public. It's just a it's a scary, scary world we live in right yeah. now. I think at the end of the day, you know, what we can all do is we can all hope that this time around, we are able to have better conversations with our friends and family. I felt like in the last two elections, because of how polarizing um, Trump was just as a candidate, it created so much animosity in my personal circles. And I, I just, yeah, I think we can all do better. I think we can all strive to just be better at not getting upset at people we disagree with this time around. Yeah, yeah. And it would be great if we, if some of the conversation uh, around uh, around our social media platforms, I think, What's happening with kind of the Elon Musk acquisition is it's creating an opportunity to have a dialogue really about, you know, the platform itself and 
you know, how do we make it a better platform that encourages um, real conversation um, versus, you know, angry fights um, and Twitter bots adding fuel to the fire, you know? Yeah, it's that's that's a great point, too. I've noticed um, in my now, you know, Twitter attempt to as the weeks have passed. The interesting thing I've experienced on there is that there is like a very educated person on there that wants to have thoughtful conversations. But the problem is you have a lot of very, you know, opinionated or strong willed people who will jump into those conversations with very, very strong language that, you know, the platform essentially kind of incentivizes because it's a shorter message. You have to be a lot more direct and it can come across a certain way. Then you see people who in person would have probably a lot more nuanced and thoughtful of a conversation, just quickly heat up at each other or just you know, say, oh, you don't understand this if you understood this or if you understood that. I had someone say, ex- like, explain science to me the other day. <laughs> I was like, at what point, like, is there an assumption that I've not learned how science works or how the scientific method works, right? And uh, there's, like, a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, missing on nuance of an argument and then coming back with a very strong sentiment. So I think like as an individual, you can just leave those messages and move on to the productive conversations. And I think the algorithms will start to put you in a place where you're mostly seeing the productive conversations. Yeah, it's, it's important. You bring up a valuable point, right? And some of the the people that I respect the most for their intelligence and nuance on most topics, they, they, don't spend too much time on any of those pla- any of these platforms, and I think that's a disservice to society that these people, because of that, because they don't want to get out there and they don't want to deal with the vitriol from the armchair guy sitting at his house who, who's Googled a few things that they've spent 25, 30 years researching, studying, giving their life to, telling them that they don't know what the hell they're talking about. They'd rather avoid it and just do their work and hopefully create meaningful impact through that versus being distracted by the noise on social media that's only going to discourage them, hurt their mental health, prevent them from really doing their jobs well. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. We live in such an interesting window right now because we all have the agency to drastically change the way we treat each other. And it just starts from you. It starts from you making the decision with how you treat people. And one thing that I've experienced, I have, um, I have, you know, a friend who I think gets a little bit more polarized about these things and just speaking to them in a very calm manner uh, and asking them questions to get to their viewpoint. And if they jump, jump the gun on your point, say, Hey, you know, I think you thought I was going to say this, but essentially the point I'm making is this just kind of guiding it kind of back on course. I've noticed just in a couple conversations, like a totally different approach to how they handled those conversations with me. And it was like really nice to see how much impact I had. I think it's too often that we allow society to have the power in terms of our experience in this country. But I've, I really do feel like we have a lot more impact on how these conversations go than we realize. Yeah. And I, and I, and I agree with you on that point. The frustrating thing that I've found with that is, you know, helping helping your friends and people who are very in in this kind of polarized space, helping them get to like a median or a middle ground. It's, it's, it's great when you're able to do that within the conversations or context with you, they're able to do that, but then they leave that conversation and they get, 
the, the troubling polarization gets reinforced by so much other noise, media people that it actually, it's like, it feels like you're, you're, you're chipping away at an iceberg with like a freaking tiny toothpick. You know what I mean? And that's, that's the thing that's, that's, uh, that's frustrating about this. But the re the point is that patience is one of the greatest virtues. And if you actually care about people, just understand that it is a process and all you can do is try your best. Yeah. And they'll evolve on their own too. I mean, they have the same power as you do. Right. So if you got there, they'll get there or they'll get to their version of it. Um, the other thing we got to call out before we wrap up is the NBA finals. We saw Celtics win an amazingly tight game seven against the heat second half. Both teams did not look like their legs were working anymore. Uh, it was, it was tough just seeing them grind that out. Warriors obviously look incredible this year. Um, they have a few players out, but uh, it looks like most of the roster is going to be able to play. Um, you know, on my side, I, I think the Warriors will win, but I really think this is going to be a tougher series than uh, any of the pe previous ones because of the quality of defense the Celtics have played this whole playoffs. What do you see, Envy? <laughs> it's pretty fascinating, you know, understanding where we're at in terms of analysis. I'm surprised at the number of people who truly believe the Boston Celtics are going to win this series. Obviously, Vegas um, always knows better and has Golden State favored. But in the conversations I'm having with a lot of basketball fans, they truly believe that Boston is going to win this series. And what's why I say that's fascinating is logically it makes no sense to come to that conclusion. And it goes to show you like some of these things that we talk about, like emotions rule people's decision-making. And as, as little as people want to admit it, I don't think people truly want to acknowledge how great of an organization the Golden State Warriors are and have been for the last decade. There's something that, that makes people want to root against them winning yeah. versus just evaluating and looking at this team and saying, wow, they lost Kevin Durant and actually got better as a team there's something that is preventing people from accepting that. Now, as I've also said, I've given Boston their respect. You know, Brad Stevenson made the decision to walk away from his job as a coach, let his ego get out of the way, brought in a coach who now the next year they're in the finals. They're tougher. They play more together. The team seems more locked in but they've never been here before. And they talk about Boston, the Boston Celtics defense. Yes, they've been a great defensive team. They've been the best team in the NBA. But nobody ever talks about the fact that Golden State is the number two overall defense. They always talk about, oh, Golden State's just going to, if they don't make their threes, they're going to lose. But they're the number two overall defense in the entire NBA and throughout their run and most of their championship runs, they were either number one or number two in overall defense. Draymond Green, Andrew Wiggins, Clay Thompson are all some of the top 10 defenders in the entire NBA. You add in Looney, Steph has improved on that end. You add in their bench, they got Iguodala back, they got Otto Porter. And it's like you look at these two teams and it's like logic says Golden State and and at max six, but that's not kind of the sentiment. It's like people are rooting 
for the Celtics uh, yeah. to win and actually are letting their logic be swayed. And I really think it's this underlying inability to just accept what Golden State is. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And I think, you know, I think um, Boston this year probably has the most promise I've seen since a LeBron team of beating Golden State. Um, other than that Toronto team, and there were so many injuries in that series, but I didn't think that Toronto team was better than a healthy Golden State that year. Yeah. Um, this this seems like a really good matchup, and after seeing what Tatum and Jalen Brown did, where they're at mentally, what Al Horford has been doing, honestly, on the floor, what Marcus Smart has been doing, what Grant Williams has been doing, the Celtics have a really amazing narrative building up, so... Um, I'm with you. I think it'll be probably six Golden State, uh, maybe less. But I think that Boston is going to put up an amazing performance. Oh, yeah. Better than expected from anybody. They're, 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 they're a great team, and it's, it's good to see them figure it out. I think regardless, the fact that they've made the finals is a step forward for this organization. Um, and the way that they've played is admirable, right? Yeah. But the reality is the Miami Heat without Tyler Harrow and injured Kyle Lowry and an injured Jimmy Butler who gave a heroic performance where anyways uh, took this team to seven games. Um, whereas you look at Golden State, they've essentially coasted through the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, and, you know, a lot of respect for me for that Heat team. I mean, anytime you have that level of toughness that you're seeing from every single player, all the way through at the end of a game seven. It's just, you know. Amazing. Yeah, they are. They're yeah. Jimmy Butler missed three away from coming back from 11 down. I didn't think the game was over when they were 11. People were like, there's only two minutes to down 11. I'm like, that's what, you know, in watching the series, I feel like you see this Jekyll and Hyde from Boston, right? When they're playing at their best, they seem unbeatable. But then they have these lapses where it just looks like they don't know what they're doing on the court. Yeah, or they look tired or, you know, whatever it might be. And yeah. you got to give the Heat a lot of credit, too. That's an incredibly well-conditioned team, incredibly physical on defense, and that wears you down, especially when you're playing the same type of defense right back. So I could definitely see specifically on Tatum, he put up an amazing scoring performance. He looked gas, man, the entire game. So did everybody on both teams. Yeah, it's going to – and the Golden State Warriors present a very unique challenge the NBA has become very much an ISO basketball league where literally the offenses, you just isolate your your top two or three players on the offensive end. Golden State, that's not how they play. They run a team-oriented offense screens. If you got tired in that Miami series, you're going to be exhausted um, <laughs> chasing yeah. chasing these guys around and, and, and fighting through their, their offense. It's very, very meticulous. It's very measured. Um, they're just a great organization. I can't, I mean. I'm and, curious uh, how they will handle the challenge of Marcus Smart. Uh, he's an incredible defender, but also a much better flopper. And he's good at getting in people's heads. Um, one of the things I also want to highlight is that the Celtics have won the regular season matchup against the Warriors, actually many of the last few seasons. So yeah, yeah, they, yeah. It's uh, to surprise us. Yeah, playoff Golden State is different than regular season Golden State. In addition, you know that the Warriors are fully healthy, right? That's uh that's scary. So yeah. <laughs> they're fully healthy. We'll see. I might be in the camp that thinks the Celtics will do a little bit 
you know, a little bit more than we think and maybe even pull out the dub. That would be amazing. And I think it would signify if we see it happen, it'll be Tatum stepping up to to that higher level and becoming a true superstar in this league. Yeah, yeah. And I think lost in the whole Tatum conversation is um, how great Jalen Brown's been playing. Yeah. Uh, he's, been- he's been the most, you know, you look at the score lines. There are some games that Jason Tatum has 10 points that we're overlooking because – I think the narrative, you know, I'm a big Jason Tatum fan. The narrative supports Jason Tatum. He's got the Kobe armband on. Um, But Jalen Brown is just like this quiet, measured assassin. And I think um, I just have a lot of respect for that guy on and off the court, too, um, for what he's been through and how much he's been criticized. He's probably been the most consistent player for the Boston Celtics throughout the playoffs. Yeah. Then you have Grant Williams and Al Horford, who I just I think have been absolutely unbelievable. Grant Williams came out of nowhere, really stepped up and found a role on this team. Al Horford has been around for a long time. I watched him a lot when he was with the Hawks, and he is on on a on a different level with this Celtics team. He's contributing to the game in ways I've never seen him contribute, and uh, I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, when you look at this, you really looked at this last series, and you realize just how shitty of an organization um, the Philadelphia 76ers have been to Joel Embiid um, in getting rid of Jimmy Butler, getting rid of Al Horford. They got rid of the guys that would have helped Joel Embiid become a champion. Instead, you know, uh, they, they have fumbled the ball, the bag, and it's showing in the performances of both of those guys throughout the playoffs that the problem was not them. The problem was the organization that they played for. And, that's that's something that Philadelphia fans are very honest about um, in, in a conversation. You know, and Jimmy Butler said it at the end of the the series. You guys chose Tobias Harris over me, um, and you know it just goes to show you. It's just unfortunate when we only evaluate players by their championships. Joel Embiid is he got disrespected as the MVP candidate. He wasn't put on the first team All NBA. I think that's all a full reflection of his organization and nothing to do with him. And that's unfortunate. Some of these narratives in in basketball, it's unfortunate because I I fear that he's going to go down as a guy because he never won a ring. He's not going to get his due respect as a basketball player and as a competitor. Yeah. I think that's well said. He he may go down as the Carl Malone of this generation. Charles Barkley. Yeah. (laughs) Barkley's a little louder than Joel. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) awesome um well on that note we're gonna wrap this episode up we have a amazing interview with andrew bogut who won a ring with with the golden state warriors uh filling us in on a little bit of what he's up to in australia what's going on in his life and then his take on the nba today looking forward to it on that uh, stay stay moving be you you is fly how the boys out Get on